Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. Throughout American history, intelligence has been a valuable commodity in politics and war. George Washington reportedly paid a secret agent to live in Boston and spy on British troops during the American War of Independence. And nearly every president since then has relied on professional intelligence to advance U.S. interests in global affairs. Every president, that is, until Donald Trump. Donald Trump has hit out at the FBI in a series of angry tweets. He claimed the agency's reputation is in tatters. When you look at what's gone on with the FBI and with the Justice Department, people are very, very angry. Escalating tensions with the FBI and the press. And that hurts. I mean, people join the FBI because they believe in what it stands for, fidelity, bravery, and integrity. Um, But to have that sort of undermined by the leadership is a difficult thing to listen to every day, Chuck. Trump has called his spies liars, leakers, and political hacks. In fact, no American president in modern memory has assumed a more confrontational stance toward what his supporters describe as a nefarious deep state. How has this adversarial relationship affected America's intelligence community? And are Trump's tantrums making America less safe? My guest today has thought hard about such questions. Kent Harrington served as a senior CIA analyst, a national intelligence officer for East Asia, and chief of station in Asia. And not surprisingly, he's worried that Trump's disdain for hard-earned insights into how the world actually works could have lasting consequences. Hello. Hi, Kent. This is Greg from Project Syndicate. Greg, good to talk with you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today at PS Editor's Podcast. Lots to talk about. I'm sure we do. Um, new new items by, uh, by the hour. By the hour. So let's get to it. I want to start the conversation, if we could, with uh, in a country that has been in the news a lot lately, North Korea, and a country that you've spent a lot of time thinking about. You have written in various commentaries for us and others that Trump's Asia policy is confused. And... Now it seems that that confusion is potentially leading to some form of detente between Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, South Korean officials, and Donald Trump himself. I just want to mention uh, we're doing very well in terms of the summit with North Korea. And I think there's a lot of goodwill. I think people want to see if we can get the meeting and get something done. If we got that done and if we can be successful in the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. It would be a great thing for North Korea. It would be a great thing for South Korea. It would be great for Japan and great for the world, great for the United States. So I wonder if in all of this confusion, Trump's mad dog act, his threats to rain down fire and fury on the North, have actually worked. The question, I guess, is, uh, uh, in my mind, how charitable do you want to be at this point when you try to uh, intuit or infer where a policy that, uh, in the case of uh, Washington and Asia these days, is heading? Uh, I think it's perhaps uh, a conclusion uh, too far at this moment to describe where we and the North Koreans are going under the Trump administration as heading towards detente. Not that there aren't optimists who would wish for this as the outcome, and not that there shouldn't be possibilities. But the question, quite frankly, is what, strategically speaking, are American goals beyond the 
the elimination of North Korea's nuclear program, uh, a pressing need as the Trump administration has put forward and as any president would, would see it, but not an end in itself when that nuclear program has become part of the North Korean military arsenal because of North Korean goals that we ultimately have to uh, understand and deal with beyond the simple step, if you will, of saying our first and our only objective is to end Pyongyang's nuclear program now. So my first observation is, first things first, uh, where does the president think he is taking the country with his all or nothing approach to a summit meeting, the first ever, with Kim Jong-un? I would suggest that uh, at this point, we don't know. And that's very disturbing. It's disturbing from two points of view. One, because uh, we all know that the steps that Trump is taking now will have consequences, good or bad. Uh, We ought to know what the goals of the administration are in order to evaluate what those potential consequences could be. When I say we, I mean the Congress of the United States, which should be a party to this, people who are uh, part of the Asian brain trust that uh, can both help and reinforce the actions uh, that Washington is taking by giving the sort of counsel that presidents and their administration need, and much more broadly, but I think uh, very relevantly, the American people who quite clearly have an interest in the role of the United States in the world, but the impact of that role uh, as it unfolds on their on their lives, whether it's diminished the threats that might be represented by the North Koreans' claim of their international, uh, uh, intercontinental, I should say, ballistic missile capabilities, uh, or simply the possibilities that will open up if uh, detente, as your question suggests, uh, is indeed an outcome. Where are we going in Asia, and what is, where is, what is it going to mean for them? Mm, okay. So too early to, to say anything has worked, and potentially too early to even be able to put our finger on American objectives. But if we could, let's, let's uh, look at the intelligence question. What do the North Koreans want? What are Kim's intentions? You know, North Korea has been called at various times a black hole for American spies and intelligence gatherers. It seems at times that Dennis Rodman is the best human intelligence that we have. What do we know about the country? Well, uh, I, 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 cer- I certainly wouldn't close the door on Dennis Rodman's observations, uh, even though I'm not sure exactly the, exactly sure what the credibility is. I'd attach it to everything uh, he, he says. Um, I, I think the, the North Koreans have, have uh, pretty clearly laid out what their objectives are. They're already on the road to achieving several of them. One, Kim Jong-un has done something that his uh, uh, two uh, predecessors, uh, grandfather and father, uh, uh, never were able to do, and that's to... Uh, not only legitimize the regime, uh, but also legitimize its status as a nuclear weapon state. Uh, the recognition that Trump's uh, initiative in uh, accepting Kim's uh, reported invitation to meet uh, represents is a recognition uh, of two nuclear powers, in this case the United States and North Korea, sitting down and talking to each other. Uh, and that is uh, quite an accomplishment in and of itself. Second, Kim is now setting the terms of, of a negotiation that is uh, exactly what the North Koreans have wanted from day one, meaning from the 1960s on when they began their outreach uh, to South Korea and the United States in very studied, deliberate form under 
uh, the previous Kims. Uh, that is to separate the United States and South Korea in two different forums as they negotiate the, the status of their own security, meaning the role of the United States on the peninsula and North Korea's uh, connections to the outside world, uh, historically connections that have been impeded by such things as sanctions uh, by the United States for, for, for quite a while. Hmm. Uh, number three, uh, the North Koreans are once again, as they've done on two previous occasions, well actually three, opening the door to South Korea in a way that gives them the initiative in helping to shape their relations with the South, again separate from uh, a triangular, if you will, uh, negotiation discussion that uh, uh, could be an alternative and it certainly would be one that would be more uh, advantageous to the United States as the North and the South work out the terms of their understandings and uh, over the longer pull, one would hope reconciliation. Kim is opening the door with these discussions to a uh, diminishment and uh, quite likely an end to the kind of onerous sanctions that have been applied to the North, not only by the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, but by previous administrations that have done uh, a good job in, in many cases, not all, in constraining the North Korean access to foreign exchange, uh, to technology, uh, and to support for its uh, various uh, needs, especially its strategic programs. Uh, and finally, I would say uh, that opportunity to open the door to uh, an end to the sanctions re regime creates another set of economic opportunities, and that's for North Korea to be able to build relationships with countries that, much as we're witnessing as the Trump administration, astonishingly, in from my perspective, uh, deep sixes its support for the uh, or its adherence to the uh, agreement with Iran on its mm, nuclear program. Right. Much as that demonstrates, uh, there there are ties between Iran and, uh, say, the European Union that are going to be uh, hugely important in how that issue plays out if North Korea can establish uh, uh, with others who have an economic interest in ties with North Korea sets of relationships. The role of the United States, uh, the role role of its allies in Asia in constraining the North's nuclear effort uh, in the future in ensuring that North Korea will not re-establish an aggressive nuclear development program if, in fact, uh, an agreement to, to slow down uh, or end their program eventuates uh, will be a much, much more difficult road to walk right. down for the United States right. and its allies. Yeah, I mean, the connection between uh, North Korea and Iran is important because why? You know, what, what can President Trump offer Kim that he could take to the bank, so to speak, if the United States isn't going to honor past obligations uh, and agreements, uh, as the case with the Iran nuclear deal represents? Well, I, I, absolutely crucial question. And uh, the only answer that it provokes in my mind uh, is is uh, the, the one-liner as one thinks about the White House and the timing of these events, uh, quote-unquote, what were they thinking? It's very hard to figure, uh, logically speaking, how these two uh, grand uh, global initiatives fit together. I, I would add one other observation to the implied observation in your question, which is to say that Kim is going to be 
uh, I'm sure, uh, looking at what the unfolding uh, aftermath of the withdrawal from the uh, Iran nuclear deal means for him when he sits down at the table. And that is that the Iranian-North Korean relationship has been uh, very close over decades. And from the viewpoint of what they are hearing, learning, uh, discussing with the Iranians, I would not underestimate the exchange of views and analysis as well as perspectives that will come from, from that experience. So it's not only the broad parallel that we're discussing uh, that raises real questions about the, the logic of these uh, moves and the logic of the administration's uh, not counter-proliferation policies, uh, but it's also at, a, at, shall we say, a more uh, pedestrian level, uh, uh, just exactly how these two um, relationships that the administration is managing, one in the sense of, of, of uh, undermining and breaking apart, and the other in the sense of supposedly trying to create, how they will go forward uh, in, in the next weeks and months. I want to swing this to the role that the intelligence community has played uh, and then broaden it out from there. So if you could walk us through the role that the CIA played in Trump's approach to dealing with Kim. Uh, and, and in particular, how is it that it was the agency and not the State Department that has been leading the effort? I think the first and most important point to say is that, again, quite astonishingly, the evisceration of the Department of State under the Trump administration is, to me, utterly inexplicable, except if one goes down the path of, of looking for uh, for political and ideological reasons uh, that uh, might explain why certain factions and side uh, Trump's uh, support groups or the administration itself uh, simply wanted to do in the department's capabilities to operate uh, for a period of time because they, for whatever reasons, felt that, that they, they neither needed them nor necessarily trusted them. So first and foremost, if you don't have a, a foreign ministry, if you don't have an effective leadership with the kinds of skills and experience at the top that uh, you need to interact with the world, uh, you got to go to a different door and knock. Uh, second, I think the Trump administration has had enormous difficulty finding the right people to put in the right positions in order to accomplish what it felt it wanted to accomplish. And in terms of the handful of people who remain in the administration with the personal relationships and loyalties that uh, matter apparently so much uh, to Trump uh, in, in his role as president, uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, the congressman from Oklahoma who has conservative credentials and has demonstrated a sort of, uh, well, one might say, Kim uh, uh, Dynasty uh, style North Korean loyalty to Trump over the the last year and a half, if not longer, uh, was someone who could bring a parallel set of capabilities to the table for Trump to use in terms of reaching out to and, and connecting with North Korea. And third, I would say the role of intelligence per se on North Korea has always been important. Uh, we have always had a very uh, deep bench of experience and expertise from technical to political, economic, and strategic on North Korea. So it would be very natural for any administration to reach out to that body of expertise. It is unusual for intelligence to play the kind of policy role uh, that it is playing under 
or played, I should say, under Pompeo in the initiative and opening uh, to North Korea. But it is not unprecedented. If you look at the parallels between North and South, uh, beginning, uh, frankly, in the 1970s, it was uh, the intelligence leadership in South Korea that maintained the channel with the Kims uh, in every case when North-South relations ameliorated and there were initiatives to improve uh, relations on the peninsula. So there's a parallel there to keep in mind. It's a counterpart relationship that would be familiar as well as comfortable to Kim Jong-un by virtue of precedent and experience. And it's also one that would would maintain, if you will, the, 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 the most uh, strict levels of security in that dialogue back and forth uh, if one was concerned about leaks or revelations or, or the like. Well, I respect the move, but the entire thing has been a witch hunt. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous, if you want to know the truth. They've had this phony cloud over this administration, over our government. And it's a disgrace. It's frankly a real disgrace. Hmm. You know, I need to ask a question about Trump's politicization of intelligence. You know, he has been accused of moving in ways that are really designed to, in some uh, some respects, save his own skin, at least in his attacks on the FBI and, and others in the community. I wonder, though, if some of the intelligence community's own challenges have given Trump the political ammunition that he needs. I mean, for some, the problem has been leaks and intelligence failures. And I think the biggest one that we can all point to is Iraq. Um, you know, for others, there's questions about the use of torture and electronic surveillance and some of these other challenges that, that don't necessarily align with uh, American democratic values. To put it bluntly, is the U.S. intelligence community at least partly to blame for whatever success Trump's attacks may be having on it? Well, it's a it's a good question. Um, is the community to blame in the sense that its failures over time have so um, obviously and one might argue if you wanted to make this case egregiously outweighed its successes that a president uh, faced with the problems Trump is facing uh, politically, legally, even potentially constitutionally. Uh, uh, w- would be would be kind of foolish not not to take on not to try to discredit the credibility of an organization whose whose uh, performance has been so weak that uh, that credibility is in jeopardy. Uh, if you begin with the proposition that uh, the examples that you gave of real or alleged failings uh, are that ammunition, uh, I would say, well, uh, let's just play the game of Washington political hardball, yeah, let's draw the conclusion. I mean, Trump is taking advantage of the ammunition that's there for him to pick up and and use. But I I take issue with the characterizations of intelligence failures, the contemporary ones in particular, as so egregious that they present Trump this kind of opportunity. And here's the reason why. In every case that you've mentioned, uh, what the intelligence community has done, if it's been found wanting. And of course, the way in which intelligence was manipulated uh, in the run up to the Iraq war by the administration of George W. Bush uh, is perhaps more a subject one should discuss than the failings of the community per se. On my orders, 
coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. Our nation enters this conflict reluctantly, yet our purpose is sure. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. But let's just take for the sake of discussion the fact that the intelligence community provided for whatever combination of reasons uh, information that was, uh, that was erroneous about the nature of weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq. What happened after that? Well, what I would argue is what should have happened, happened. And that was uh, a considerably expansive inquiry, investigation, and debate publicly as well as behind closed doors in terms of congressional inquiries and reviews of the intelligence failings and an effort that was, again, publicly as well as behind closed doors pursued to try to make certain that the problem didn't happen again. The same sort of thing that happened with the after, in the aftermath of 9-11, the same th- sort of thing that uh, happened, albeit unfortunately so highly politicized that it did not uh, find itself supported by a consensus in Congress after the revelations about quote-unquote enhanced interrogation techniques, otherwise known by any person who reads Webster's Dictionary as torture. Uh, all of those things were... I don't want to say thoroughly, completely, and and uh, and appropriately examined. All of them were examined in depth. The the conclusions that were drawn were made public, and the intelligence community take that latter example uh, of the the torture issue uh, made clear the corrective actions. In, in that case, it's uh, statements that it would not engage in this sort of pursuit again, even if asked by future presidents, are quite clear and public. So uh, the the point I would make is that just taking these contemporary examples and not even going back to earlier uh, issues where the intelligence uh, community in one form or another failed to deliver what it, it, it should have. I think the, 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 the important thing is that these were, if you will, sins that were, that were debated, discussed, and if, if not expiated, at least made public in a way that people took corrective actions for. If you were a president who was seriously interested in looking at failures, failures in your intelligence community, what choice would you have? Would you take the choice of, of, of intermittently tweeting uh, about, about your enemies uh, in the ranks? Or would you sit down and say, let's look at these failures. Let me call together a commission. Let me turn to Congress and ask for an inquiry. Let me identify very specifically what needs to be done and what needs to be corrected. Or would you take the road that this guy has taken, which is clearly an effort to not just politicize, uh, but really in some ways to try to destroy the integrity of an organization in order to save its own skin. Hmm. Well, I think we have the rhetorical answer. Uh, the inquiry will be delivered in 140 characters plus. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Very briefly, we've talked about the present, we've talked about the past. What does the future of espionage and intelligence look like? Is, is tomorrow's spy game less James Bond and more AI consultants working remotely in a trailer somewhere? It, it's a question that leads me to offer two, two observations. Um, 
one, uh, you, you would have to have been living on the dark side of the moon for the last 15 or 20 years and not um, answer the question, where is intelligence going with uh, a, a bow to the extraordinary impact of technology uh, at all levels on the business and, and how it's conducted and, and what it produces. Indeed, you know, the, the not just the growing role, but the the, the almost universal effect uh, from collection to analysis to the way information is presented to how open source material is exploited to the way in which uh, once complicated uh, tasks uh, like uh, protecting your intelligence operations as they're underway have now become in some respects uh, almost impossible because of the intrusiveness of technology and identifying people and techniques you'd have to be you'd have to be smoking something not to say that uh, perhaps uh, not just artificial intelligence but the the, the way in which technology is just pervasively uh, influenced in the intelligence business today goes without saying. Mm, right. At the same at the same time, uh, I would I would simply add that intelligence is all about one thing and one thing only, and that's uh, trying to understand uh, how events that are in, in in almost all cases inherently unpredictable are going to unfold. And that means understanding people, and that means understanding how people and their environment react or interrelate. So uh, with all due respects to the, the boys in Silicon Valley who tout big data, and with, uh, with, with, uh, with great admiration for those that invent uh, extraordinary uh, software and systems to, uh, to collect and manipulate and manage information. At the end of the day, the question is a, a question of human judgment. Uh, both about what you need to collect uh, and also what it means. And so in this sense, um, I, I would not uh, say that the world has changed in a way that gives technology the uh, capability to lead us to a kind of, uh, if you will, intelligence nirvana, where all we need to do is just tweak the software to make it 99 and 44 100 uh accurate in its in its output and will be there uh it's still a question of people and still a question of the unknown and in many ways the unpredictable and uh one hopes in a way for the for the the the, the romance of some of it uh the james bond illusion uh, uh, that you mentioned if you will uh that it will always be so well i think that's a good place to to leave it so thank you very much for your time today kent it was a pleasure speaking with you a pleasure and uh, uh, all the best. That was Kent Harrington, a former CIA analyst, national intelligence officer for East Asia and chief of station in Asia. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher and iTunes. And if you like what you hear, why not subscribe to our latest editorial offering, On Point, available at www.project-syndicate.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. 